0: Well, as you know, we're in Acts chapter 17, uh, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, really. I, um, I just think it's masterful how the Apostle Paul um, is talking to these pagan philosophers, trying to present the case of who, uh, who God is and uh, what he's doing in his world. And so what I did up here, uh, I, I hope you can see it, I, I, I don't know. But I I thought of of just trying to um, make this as simple as I can and and help you to understand uh, the kind of argument that Paul is presenting to these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in the Areopagus at the base of, of, of the Parthenon and the Acropolis in Athens. He's presenting to them, remember that we started this section when Paul's standing in Athens and his soul is so disturbed because he sees a city devoted to idolatry. And uh, he, he's disturbed by that. And so he's in the marketplace, the agora, and he's talking with people, sharing with people the truth about God and, and Jesus Christ and so on. And the philosophers come up to him and said, we want to hear more. We want to hear more of your new teaching. And so they invite him to the Areopagus and he sits with his council and uh, he walks up. I'm trying to summarize to get to the point of verse 24. As I was walking up the the, the hill here, I noticed that you have an altar dedicated to the unknown God, which was uh, absolutely correct. We have actually found in archaeology, we found one of those altars and it has at the base printed to the unknown God. So that has been verified by by archaeological investigation. And so what he says, it's so shrewd. He says, this unknown God that you worship, I'm here to reveal him to you. I'm here to tell you who he is. You're covering all your bases. The one that's unknown to you has revealed himself. And so what he does is he lays down the proposition. This true God is the sovereign God of the universe because he's the creator And he creates all things for human flourishing. That's really what he's saying in verses 24 and 25. I'll go back and we'll go over that in just a minute. And then, even more profoundly, he says, he has created the nations, he's created time, and he's even set the boundaries. And then, what he does to validate that, he quotes from two of their philosophers who agree with what he has been saying. About their gods, and then he moves into uh, the the last, the kind of the the peak of what he wants to to say to them. He brings in the resurrection, and that's what's going to divide the that's going to divide the council because some are going to embrace that, most are going to reject it. So uh, before we get into the next section, which is what I want to do with this sheet here, uh, let's um, let's talk about this and read um, read it in the in the Word there. What I wrote up does that make sense? Saying it's not clear? Because this is your thought paper assignment for next week. Well, nobody's saying anything, so the silence either means you really get this or you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. So let's take a look at, at, uh, again, the first part. Let me just go through verse 24 and 25 again because I want to get the entire continuity of what he's saying here in one session. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, okay, that's the proposition. That's the central theme that he wants to present. Does not live in temples made by man. In contrast to your gods, who live in all these buildings and temples, not the one true God. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. Everything that is necessary for human flourishing comes from the gracious, good, benevolent hand of God. That, you see what he's doing there? He's, he's forcing them to sink outside the box of their spiritual universe, your to the Greeks, your spiritual universe is a universe filled with gods, lots of gods, who are in conflict, they, they fight each other, they're immoral, they're duplicitous, they're deceitful, the unknown God that you do just to cover all your bases, I'm here to tell you, and he is the one true and only God. He's the sovereign God. He's the sovereign creator. And everything he has created, he gives you breath, he gives you life, he gives you everything, is for the flourishing of the human race. Now, here would be a great place for him to quote the Old Testament and go to the creation ordinance, but these people have no ground in the Old Testament. So he's using what we sometimes call, in apologetics, the argument from design. You see a world that is a good world for you. There's enough for you to eat, there's enough for you to drink, the sun shines, the rain comes. Everything in your world is for the flourishing of the human race. That's not an accident, he's saying. That comes, notice how he puts it. That comes from the Lord of heaven and earth. And don't try to confine him to a building. Joel, did you have your, your, your hand up?
1: Oh, I was just going to question, comment, like, the, I mean, most of the gods of the ancient world were not, they weren't interested in human flourishing, really, right?
0: That's I mean, correct, it, basically.
1: It was kind of a, almost an adversarial
0: basically, that's
1: relationship right. or, or stance that they <clears throat> against the human race. That,
0: that I think it, basically that, that's accurate, yes the, um, I mean, <laughs> in the Babylonian uh, area the, 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 the humans to them were a nuisance right. uh, To the, yeah, I mean you're absolutely right what he is arguing here about the one true and only God is a foreign concept to the Greek and Roman mind it is a, it's a foreign concept to them that the gods are benevolent Gracious and good. Now, again, they, I'd say gods because they were polytheists. That is not how they thought about their gods. And so when they sacrifice and uh, do all the homage and stuff they're supposed to do to their gods is to prevent them from being wrathful and, and mean and, and um, the deceit that's a part of their... That they don't want that because everything that's happening in that gods is being reflected in, in human activity. And the humans, I mean, if you've ever read uh, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, do you you ever read those? I mean, there you really see how they look at this. Here's the gods and all the things they're fighting each other and so on. And humans are just reflecting the fighting that's going on here. And they're tools and instruments that the gods use to get back at one another. It's a horrible way to look at the world. And Paul is saying, the one true God is not like that. So, your model and your understanding and your assumptions about the gods is absolutely false. And I want you to understand the God that you worship as the unknown God is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's created everything to facilitate human flourishing. Now, the Old Testament explains to us it's because we are his image bearers and he loves us respite, in spite of our rebellion, and he's going to send a savior. To, I mean, that, he's getting to that at the end of his, his address. But he's trying to present to them in language that they can come to terms with everything you believe about the supernatural world is wrong. And, guys, that, that's the way so many people are today a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Muslim, and I mean, you could add others. They all are wrong in how they look at the supernatural. And so what our job is is to help them understand that there is a one true and only God who has revealed himself, and here's what he's like. I represent him. And I want to tell you as much as you're willing to listen about him. And that's what Paul's is trying, trying to make the case for them to consider another way of looking at the supernatural world. But are you
2: saying that they didn't know anything about the Old Testament?
0: They did not. So
2: he couldn't make reference <laughs> they, to the prophets
0: or anything Absolutely. Like it would have no meaning to them.
2: These are all Gentiles?
0: That's correct. That's correct. Right. So, I mean, it's just, it's it, that's why like it's... Not when
2: he argued in the synagogues. No, the no that,
0: exactly. Serious? When he's in the synagogue, he's quoting from the Old Testament, he's talking about Messiah, that's correct. Okay. That would be of no value to these folks, because they, they they wouldn't know what he was talking about. Fred.
1: Uh, a lot of these gods, do they come from home, uh, personal emotions that they, they felt? Or, uh, I, I mean, I'm talking about the, the original authors of these various thoughts. Uh, Have you studied that?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, mythology it is a word that can kind of capture all that. Mythology is almost every um, worldview outside of biblical Christianity is rooted in mythology, myth, to explain something you don't understand.
1: But they had experience some of those feelings, otherwise they wouldn't have those <clears throat> concepts.
0: Now, what, what do you mean by experience some of those feelings? I, I, I hear your words, but I'm not, I'm not quite understanding.
1: Well, you know, like God well, of wrath. And, and they see the wrath, perhaps, of a higher authority,
0: and so I that becomes a
1: characteristic
0: or an attribute of a god. Exactly. And just human nature mm-hmm. acting out on earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I mean, Zeus, which was the chief god in the Greek pantheon the Romans, just changed his name to Jupiter. They, he is usually uh, depicted in statues and so on holding a big thunderbolt, lightning bolt. And that, because he was the God of the sky, and when he was wrathful and angry, you knew it a thunderstorm or whatever <laughs> you know and um, and the, the 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 more serious and more ominous the storm was, the angrier he is now we got to figure out why he's angry at, it. what did we do to make him angry type type thing and it 's arbitrary, uh, and that's one of the really important aspects of of almost all mythologies outside biblical Christianity, the gods do not act ethically. Do you understand? Their wrath is arbitrary. Their actions are arbitrary. Whereas the Bible clearly presents God as an absolute ethical being based on a moral character that is immutable, is unchangeable. He doesn't, he's not arbitrary. He doesn't throw temper tantrums. When he acts in judgment it 's because there 's an ethical reason for that occurring. Think of the flood, you know for example, genesis six so, i mean so're the mythological and that 's true that 's true in the Latin American civilizations, the Mayas and Incas and Aztecs. their whole mythological worldview is rooted in trying to explain things they don 't understand, and so they assign that understanding to a god or gods, and each, this is what happens in mythology, each, each force of nature is assigned a god. And each, you know, the planets. The, the Greeks and Romans observed the skies, and they, planet means planet, oh, the wandering ones, they don't fit the movement of the rest of the things in the heavens. So they they just assigned a god's name to it. And so Jupiter is Jupiter. The largest of the ones they could see, he's the chief pantheon. Saturn, Neptune, the god of the sea, all that kind of stuff. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm saying more than you really want me to say. But what Paul is saying is, what you, your worldview of a world filled with gods who are not benevolent and not gracious and not good, but arbitrary, that is not the god that is the one true and only god. He has created everything and given everything to human beings for them to flourish. Now, he's going to explain why they didn't, and that's because of sin. But he's trying to present, you see evidence of him everywhere. Now, let's start going down and thinking a different way than you're thinking about the supernatural world, which leads him to the second point, which begins in verse 26, which is, is, is really an amazing thought for these Greeks to try to get their intellectual arms around. And he made from one man. Who's that? Adam. One man. Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now there he is alluding to Genesis. But without quoting it, not saying as Genesis said, he's just making a declaration to live in the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods. He's the author of time. And as Genesis 1 tells us that. And the boundaries of their dwelling places. His sovereignty is so extensive that he created every human being from one. All of the nations that you see around you came from one person. That's Adam. And he has set up time because time gives structure and order to our world, and he defined the boundaries. And why did he do that? Verse 27. All, I hope all of your translations have, begin the verse with the word that. That's a purpose clause. For this purpose, that they should seek God. Now, what Paul, now again, he isn't using that language. But what he has just said is God's revelation to humanity and his general revelation, his nonverbal revelation in his creation. Everything that is a part of your world, I'm talking about every physical part of your world, should drive you to understand who created all of It should drive you to God. And that's exactly what David says in Psalm 19, what Paul says in Romans 1.18 and following. David says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And it's a wonderful psalm to study. Psalm 19. And then Paul says in in, in Romans 1.18 and following that, that the creation of God, the physical creation of God tells us what he's like. Tells us about his divine power. Tells us about his goodness. But what do humans do with that? They suppress that truth and begin to worship the created thing instead of the creator. Which is exactly what the Greeks are doing. And so, so Paul is forcing them, well, I shouldn't say forcing, he's encouraging them to think differently about their theological framework. Consider an ethical monotheistic God. Now, I'm I'm using words that he didn't use, but that's really what he's saying. Consider that there's one God who's ethical and righteous. Consider that. Because Paul says, God has created everything for human flourishing and created all these, all the people, all human beings owe their existence to him. And the time that gives order and structure to our lives because time is based on the movement of the heavens, right? Yeah. I mean, right? Yes. Okay. I mean, you know that 365 days isn't just made up. But you know all that. But anyway. And, and, and then even the boundaries. That's the sovereign God that I'm here to explaining to you. Because God's done all this to drive you to him. That they should seek God in hope. That they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yes. Can you cover again the determined line of periods? I missed where I missed that. Can you explain that? Say it again, please. Explain the time, please. Uh, time in, for example, it, you you read that in Genesis when God creates the heavenly bodies, he says it's for time, for you to be able to organize your life around time, and you know where. Why do we have thirty days? In, in a month. Why do we have 365 days in, in, in a year? We just don't pull that out of thin air. It's based on the movement, okay. you know, the rotation and revolution of the earth and the moon and the sun and all that stuff. And that's uh and and that's exactly what what the author what Moses and the author of Genesis is telling us and that's what Paul's telling us here, without quoting Genesis, because that would mean nothing to them. They've never read the book of Genesis, they don't know anything about it. But he's saying something that you you assign time to the god Kronos, chronometer, you know, to to a god. He's got to explain time while the god Kronos did it. Paul's saying, no, your world is not filled with gods. There's one god. And everything you assign to a particular god is, is the product of the sovereign, true god of the universe who's created everything. And he did it this way to drive his rebellious creation to him. He's making the case. This is revelation. That's why in this other sheet, this, this revelation, this is a, the, the, the natural world, the created world, is a, an aspect of God's revelation. He's revealing himself. You learn something about him by studying his world. And... I mean, we, I don't think we need to explain that. It's uh, pretty clear. But that's a nonverbal revelation. Do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah. It's nonverbal. I mean, God isn't saying, I created the trees. <laughs> but you study the trees, and you study the butterflies, and you study the birds, and you study the whales, and you study how orderly things are, and you, you see the incredible precision of the movement of the planets and this moon and, the, and all of that stuff, and you say, well, man. And you have two choices. It's either an accident, or this is really a design. This was set up this way. And so, you know, if you don't want to accept that there's a God, and your only other, the only other option you have is this is, you know, this is some kind of cosmic accident. We're just kind of fortunate that everything sort of lined up the way they did. Well, that's invisible
1: evidence of something that you can identify with and begin to, uh, as you say, grow, As he's using that word. That's right. If you're really seeking and have this make sense to you, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because it's there for you to see.
0: I mean, that's exactly right. And that what Paul is saying here in these verses is still true today but we're much more sophisticated, much more intelligent, quote, unquote. But, and so what, we do, what we've done in the modern secular world is we've come up with an, an, an alternative explanation. That's thoroughly secular and ster- thoroughly based on chance. Because if you don't have design by a designer, then what you have is chance. Now, it was a chance that everything worked out right. The Earth is just tilted by chance, precisely the way it is, because if we're tilted just a couple of more degrees off, we'd all be incinerated. But that's chance, and just by chance, this planet has just the right amount of oxygen mixed with hydrogen, and just just the right amount of water, and just you see all of that, because your your explanation. This is what Paul's saying. Everything you see comes from the perfect designer who's the sovereign Lord of heaven and Earth, that he set this up this way for human flourishing, as, as we read there, to you know give life, breath and everything. Now you can either accept that or assign it to a bunch of gods. Each force of nature has a God that they fight each other, they hate each other, and we are just the victims of all their fighting, and so it's just what they believed. And in addition, he not only created everything for human flourishing, he is the one who created time, he's the one who created the nations, he's the one who created the boundaries, because he's sovereign. And all of this is to drive you to him. Jim? So in verse
2: 26, is he talking about collective, like in the nations, or is he talking about individual,
0: well, the Greek, that's a great question. Because when you and I read the word nations, you're thinking about the boundaries of the nation states in Europe. That's not, it, the Greek word is ethnos. We got a word ethnic from that. Because even in the ancient world, they, uh, they didn't necessarily, I mean, in the ancient world, the concept of a nation state was pretty much a foreign concept to them. So that's why we translate it nation, but all of the ethnic groups that's maybe a better way to really flesh that out.
2: But he but he also, and, it's also true, is it not, that he's designated my lifetime, my oh, lifespan. Oh, sure.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Kind of the
2: boundaries of where I'm going to live. That's right. And That's right. all of that. And so he's, is he asking him as an ethnic group to think about this or as an individual or?
0: I think both. I think both, really. And, um... You know what he's doing here is what is in Genesis 10 and 11. I mean, what Paul is doing in these verses is summarizing what's in the first 11 chapters of Genesis without quoting it, without alluding to it, as Genesis says, or as he doesn't do that. But he's saying the same thing. How do you explain all of the different ethnic groups and that they all dispersed out from one little tiny speck of land in the Mesopotamian Valley? And, and well, Paul's saying, uh, God, God's the one who did this. God is the one who dispersed them. Now we know part of that was dispersion and confusion of languages, and all the stuff was was due to, to sin. But nonetheless, Paul is saying, if you want an explanation of all this, don't try to make it up around myths that you can't explain things. So we'll just assign some. No, the one true sovereign God did all of this. And it is all for the flourishing of the human race who bear his image. Now, he doesn't talk like that here. But that's how Genesis presents it. So I don't know if I'm answering your question. So, I mean, it is, he's exploring with these Greek philosophers, he's exploring the boundaries of God's sovereignty. And the more he lays it out, you start to see there are no boundaries to his sovereignty. Everything Everything owes its existence to him. All right, I think you're with me. Isn't this masterful, though? Really? Isn't this just masterful? He's challenging their worldview. He's challenged them to think differently about their world than for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years what they believed is what the Greeks and Romans believed. He's challenging them to think differently about it. And you and I have the same, we you and I have the same assignment. People are secularists or atheists or Buddhists or whatever, to so challenge them, if you have the opportunity, challenge them to think differently about their worldview. Have you considered? So, now this is even more brilliant. So, what he does, he says, I mean, now, verse 27, that they should seek God, etc., yet he's actually not far from each one of us. You're grouping to find him. But he's not really far. So he quotes, for in him we live and move and have our being. And in doing that, he is quoting from Epimetides, a very early philosopher of the Greeks, about 600 BC or so. What does he mean, in him we live and move and have our being? We exist by the sustenance the beneficence and grace of God that's what he's saying, and he quotes one of their philosophers to make a Christian theological proposition. Now, is that shrewd or not? I mean that's, that he, he, to establish credibility for his argument, he says, "Well, one of your Greek philosophers basically said that in 600 BC, Epimenides, and even some of your own poets. For we are indeed his offspring, a Stoic philosopher, Aratus, A-R-A-T-U-S. Is it a coincidence that Paul chose to quote from a Stoic philosopher? No, because remember, the key philosophers of the Areiotics at that time were Stoics and Epicureans. So he quotes from one of their, is that credible? Is that going to, cause them to prick their ears and maybe listen a little? Yes. And what does that mean? We are indeed his offspring. We come from the creation of God. All right, now, this is what Paul has done. Paul has created an alternative way for them to think about the supernatural world making the case, basically an argument from design, making the case that this unknown God that you worship just to cover your bases, I'm here to tell you who he is, and he's really the one true and only God. He's the sovereign creator of the universe. And this is extent of his sovereignty. And even your poets, even your philosophers, would agree with the premises I'm laying out. So what do you do with that? two things. You see, are you with me? Yeah. Number 20, verse 29. Being then God's offspring. Okay? Agreeing with Eratus, the stoic philosopher said, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by art and the imagination of man. If God is like that, how can you create an image of him with a piece of stone or a block of gold or silver? How can you do that? I mean, the conclusion is, well, we really can't, if you're going to be intellectually honest. If this is the way God is, as I just laid out, is it Paul now? You, you really can't confine him to an image, a, a, a piece of stone or gold or silver. You, you really can't do that. Now listen. I don't know why I said now listen, but let's go back to this sheet here. What Paul is referring to as the times of ignorance, which that's the phrase that's in the next verse, is referring to this. The times of ignorance of my specific revelation. You Greeks and Romans have had this revelation. You haven't responded very well to this. As a matter of fact, you've created a supernatural world of beliefs and images and idols, etc., etc., but you're not responding. But God didn't judge you for that. But now, His special revelation has come. Who's that?
1: It's Jesus.
0: His special revelation has come. And He is going to hold you accountable for this. He is going to judge you for this. In other words, in His grace... He hasn't judged you, I mean, in a final sense, that's what, final eternal sense, but this specific revelation has come, and this is going to determine where you spend eternity. So if you look at his, now he's he's at the deciding point of his of his address. I mean, he's going to force them to do something with all this. So he says, the times of ignorance got overlooked. That's, this is a time... You, you didn't have the specific, specific information about who he is. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who's that? Jesus. Jesus. Again, using, remember, he is talking to people that have no understanding of the Bible. No understanding of anything that you and I are very familiar with. But he's moving now from general revelation to special revelation. And that special revelation is in Jesus, everything he represents, everything he is, and he's going to judge the world. He will hold you accountable for this special revelation. And how do we know this is all true? Because he raised him from the dead. You see how central the doctrine of the resurrection is.
2: I'm sorry. Some emphasis right
0: there. <laughs> well, I like Robin Hood, so that's why I have that. <clears throat> Boy, did I ever lose my point. Um, So, I mean, he has really moved quickly here. The times of ignorance, the general revelation. Now, the special revelation of God has come, and He therefore God is now insisting that everyone repent. Everyone. Because he has fixed a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by his category of righteousness, by a man whom he appointed, Jesus, And how do we know this is all true? Because he raised him from the dead. Now listen, what did the Greco-Roman, the typical Greco-Roman person, how did they think about the resurrection? That is something they thought about. Now this assumes you know something about them. (laughs) Why did they, why did, because it says when he heard the, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, he has three responses. <clears throat> Let me review something here. Yo, I'm using a lot of paper, First National Bank. Is that all, right? That's all right. Maybe they can raise their interest rates a half point yeah. to cover it. <laughs> okay. <in here. laughs> the Greco Roman typical Greco-Roman person was a dualist now that, that's a philosophical word but I don't think that's hard to, to get what does that mean there is a material world and there's an immaterial world alright now that's I would not disagree with that but they assign a value to it. They said the material world is evil. The immaterial world is good. And the immaterial world never has anything to do with the material world. So if, it, if you believe, you teach in the doctrine, you teach the doctrine of the resurrection, what are you saying? You're saying that God is going to raise a material body, which is evil, he's going to raise it, he's going to resurrect it. For the Greek, for the Roman person, that was unthinkable. That's why they had so much struggle, so much difficulty with the Incarnation. You know what I mean by Incarnation? God the Son adding to his deity a body? They said, that's impossible. God would never do that. It takes conversion to Christianity to the understanding truly who Jesus is for you to get your arms around that and say, yes, I agree. That's exactly what happened on Christmas. The second person of the Trinity added to his deity humanity and came to earth for the purpose of dying for the salvation of the human race, which, of course, is what the gospel is and all that. That's why the text tells us in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mock. This is what they're mocking. It's crazy. Nobody believes that. <coughs> the, and the, this is why the Romans and Greeks believed they could do anything they wanted with their bodies. Because their bodies, when they die, their bodies are done. There is a soul, there is a spirit, but the body, there's no idea of the resurrection. No idea. The body is evil, and we can do whatever we want with our bodies. Sexually, in terms of food, in terms of drink, one of their gods—a the god Bacchus—you celebrated to that god by a drunken festival. Everybody got drunk, raging, roaring drunk. That's how you worship Bacchus, the Bacchanian festivals—they were called horrific events. But that's how they worshipped. Now I'm saying all that because when Paul introduces the resurrection, which is the linchpin of biblical Christianity. Do you agree with that? Mm -hmm. If there is no no resurrection, stop coming to this class. I mean it. Stop coming. If there's no resurrection, Jesus is still in the grave. Don't you dare come to this class. I've been lying to you for several years now. But if there is a resurrection, if Jesus is not in the grave, if he has conquered death, which he has, then everything this book says needs consideration and that's what Paul has done he's taken an enormous leap from a general revelation of who God is and his goodness (laughs) and graciousness to the doctrine of the resurrection because the resurrection proves God is going to hold you accountable because the one that he raised from the dead is going to be the one who will judge the human race you still with me yeah Now, there are two more responses, though. Some mocked, but others said, this is the second response, we'll hear you again about this. We want to hear more. So they're not closing the door. Then the third group. But some men joined and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, Dionysius, he's one of the philosophers that sits on the council. And a woman named Damaris, we had known nothing about her, and others with them. So you have three responses. Some mocked him because of the resurrection teaching. Some said, come back again, we want to hear more. They considered it. Yes, they're thinking about it. They're considering it. They're mulling it over. And the third, some believed in the truth of what he was saying. We'll see Dionysius, the Areopagite, in heaven. We'll see Damaris, Damaris in heaven. And whoever these others are, we'll see them in heaven. I don't know, there, of the 9,762 things I want to do when I get to heaven, this is one of them. I want to talk to these folks. I really do. I want to talk to them about Paul's address. I want to talk to him, what was it that convinced you that what he was saying was true? What was it? Was it the resurrection? Was it his argument from general revelation? Well, I mean, what was it? And I mean, you know, obviously the Holy Spirit uses lots of things to bring a person to faith.
1: That's what I was going to ask. Where
0: does, what role does the Holy Spirit play in this? Well, central, central. The Holy Spirit woos people as another verse in the book of Acts so yeah but I mean this, this is can I say something else that I think is, is a general rule I'm not sure I'd die for it but a general rule these are usually the three responses to the gospel people mock it that's the silliest stupid thing i you mean you still believe something like that so, you know. I want to hear more about that or they believe there's the three responses. There really aren't too many others. That's basically the three responses to truth. You mock it, I want to hear more, or you believe it. Yes. what is it? That's the Areopagus, that's Mars Hill, but that's where the philosophers meant. That's where they meant. When Paul is addressing them, he's addressing them on Mars Hill. The Areopagus is a Greek word for Mars Hill. Ares is the god Mars, god of war. That's the Greek name for him. And then Pegas is a mountain or a hill, the hill of Mars. But that's where they chose to meet. So when it calls him an Areopagite, Areopagite he is one of the philosophers that met on Mars Hill. So Paul, one of the converts, was one of the philosophers. And it's, I mean, it's just, that's a profound truth that you just think, wow. And Luke is so, and this again is why it's important, Luke is so clear. I want you to know the name of one of these people that converted to Christianity on Mars Hill. He was one of the philosophers. His name was Dionysius. And we're to sit back and say, wow, the amazing work of God's spirit, even in the heart of a philosopher in A.D. About A.D. fifty one or fifty two, when this occurred.
2: He didn't exactly use a seeker friendly approach, here, did he? He's very direct and very hard. And yeah. In verse thirty one, he talks about the accountability exactly for their knowledge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He must have really stirred yes, them up.
0: Yes, absolutely. You know, and. Uh, I've often thought about, because I have preached on this, I, I used it, and, and I was speaking to as an address to a group right after 9-11, and just coincidentally I was going to be using this. And so, um, to me, I would think that Paul spent a lot of time thinking, how am I going to address these people? I mean, this wasn't serendipity. He just didn't think this up. I mean, he could, but... I mean, I think he thought through, how am I going to present this to these guys? What's the argument I'm going to make? How am I? And, and it also illustrates to us, as we've talked earlier, remember he was educated at one of the best universities in the Roman Empire, University of Tarsus. And then he studied under Gamaliel II, the greatest uh, rabbi of the first century. I mean, God so prepared him in all of these areas he would be ministering. And so, in quoting from two of their philosophers, he's drawing on his education. He's drawing on his training. He knew exactly how they thought because he trained in one of their schools. He would have studied their writings at at Tarsus University. So I'm saying all that. It's just God takes His time in preparing somebody. And in this case, he took he took uh, a, a you know close to not quite 40 years to really prepare Paul for what he had him to do for the next 20-some years before he was executed. But here you just see the erudition and brilliance of Paul understanding his audience and crafting a message that is, is so shrewdly crafted, But and, and to Jim's point, but forcing them to make a decision. For, I mean, he's forcing them to make a decision. You must come to terms with who this God is who's revealed himself. Now, that's the wrong thing, but who's revealed himself. And and now he's revealed himself specifically in a man whom he's raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. And you must come to terms with him because he's going to hold you accountable. And I mean, that, you must make a decision. <laughs> uh, and that, I mean, that's, I don't know... You know, I don't know how you do this in every kind of situation you're in, but in in the times that I've shared Christ with people over the many, many years, I've always, at some point, I want them to make a decision. Well, what are you going to do with this? Uh, You know, sometimes they'll say, I want to keep, can we keep meeting? I want to talk some more about this. Of course, that's the second response to Paul. And I mean, I've had, I've had countless people, and a lot of, because, you know, it's, my circles for part of my life was in academic people, with, you know, they're, they're the most sophisticated people because they think they know everything, and you, you start talking to them about some of these things, they think you're nuts. But you make that case, and, and then, you know, they can mock you and make fun of you and so on. And then the number of people who've come to Christ. I mean, that's just, there are the three responses. They're going to mock you, I want to hear more, or they're going to believe And I just, I love how Paul did this. Uh, It's just, I think it's one of the most uh, significant passages for us as we think about the growing secular world in which we live. To force people to think about another way of putting their worldview together. Factor Jesus into your worldview. What difference would that make? Of course, that's... uh, that's the neat thing about it. All right. Any other questions, John?
1: Could you talk a little more on the dualist here about the immaterial side, uh, which is good. What what does that consist of? I mean, in the mind of the dualist,
0: it's the physical the world,
1: material, and evil body. But, yeah.
0: But. yeah. Well, to, I mean, Plato taught this. Plato. This is what Plato taught. This is exactly what he taught, and and so did Aristotle and others. They all were dualists. Um, the, the material world, the material world, and primarily because that's how Paul was talking about it, but the human body is evil. But so is the material world. And so uh, it's only the realm of the spiritual that's good. So they're making a value judgment about this too. That's why Plato, um, Plato talked about the realm of God. And he, the Greek word is theos, the realm of theos. Because he said that's where good is. And he said everything on earth, he would say, this coffee cup is an imperfect reflection of the perfect that's in the realm of the, of the, of the material, the realm of the spirit. This isn't perfect. This, this is imperfect. This is inadequate. And so where is goodness in the realm of God? Where's truth in the realm of God? Where's beauty in the realm of God? This isn't, this isn't the world of beauty. This is an imperfect, and they explain why it happened that way. But it's, and so nothing in this world is good. That's what Plato would say. And so you you await, um, you await your death when your soul then joins with the good, not your body. And so to, to your body, your body is an imperfect, cursed reflection of that which is perfect. And it will not last. And this I, for them it was re, it was reprehensible to teach that God is going to resurrect the human body. That was a reprehensible thought to them. Once it's God is God. So the idea that the soul would live on in some That's right. form is is
1: acceptable but not
0: Yes, very much so. Very much so.
2: You know, it's really hard to see how the, all this comes together the way you've been made it clear this morning or right? afternoon. Um, it's just the, from the author, Luke, and the real author of the Holy put it together. That's right. But for it all to be there and to see that, and then the three points, the three responses
0: to the that we respond, I'm, I've never seen that in there before. Ah. Uh, good. That's, that's, good. Yeah. So you're leaving here having learned something. That's wonderful. <laughs> no, I mean that. It's, whenever anybody says, like, oh, thank you, or, that's great. No, but I mean, you're right. It's like every time we read the Scripture, something else comes out that we learned about. And I love that. I love this whole chapter, as you probably guessed, because we've been on it almost three weeks. But I think it really helps us. It should help us to think about, how should we talk about God? How should we think about God? How should we talk about God? And this chapter, in a very real sense, challenges the very secular, um, non God-centered explanation of how everything came about. Do you you understand what I mean? I mean, the the typical model of how everything in this physical world came about does not include God at all. God plays no part in it. It's not I had one guy say to me a PhD in physics, oh, the realm of theology is not the realm of science. Don't ask me theological questions. That's not the realm of science. Science has nothing to do with theology. So, I mean, it's like, here's whatever you want to believe about theology is here. But I work in science. I deal with the real world. I deal with the data. I deal with the experiment. I'm proving stuff. You're not proving. You can't prove anything you believe. That's the one guy said, you can't prove anything you believe. You can't prove to me there's a God. But I can prove to you that the, that the earth revolves I can prove that to you. Uh,
1: I guess what's amazing to me to that on what Daryl said is, this was written how long ago Mm -hmm. but yet it's still real and applicable.
0: It's absolutely true. It's timeless truth. Exactly, it's timeless truth, yep. Which is how we want the scriptures to be understood. Timeless truth. What
2: would be interesting to know would would be how much preparation Paul had to make this presentation. Mm -hmm. Did he draw so much from his, or did it all come to recall? Whenever he had studied it
0: mm-hmm. as an emperor. I really I I can't prove this because obviously we don't know. But it, when it, we start this section, Paul's standing in the agora, and he's disturbed by all the idolatry that he sees in this city. And this is the intellectual city of the Greco-Roman world. And it's intellectual, center not all the philosophy, but there are more gods being worshipped, more statues and temples to, in Athens. Uh, Bethany Hughes has written a wonderful book on the world of Socrates, and she tries to depict, as Socrates, because you know, he walked around in Athens teaching, what, the, what was his day like? What did he see? And she just goes through all the statues and idolatry and everything he saw. Because, see, Socrates challenged, Socrates challenged a lot of the polytheism of, of, of Athens from a totally different perspective. And he would end up being killed for that, as you know, or or actually commit suicide. But anyway, the reason I'm saying all that is I think as he's standing, he started to think, how am I going to address them now? What am I going to say to them? Because I can't use the Old Testament. They have no idea what I'd be talking about. They've never read the Old Testament. They don't have any exposure to it. And so I think I really do think that he started to think about the presentation he would make as he gets to talk and dialogue with the philosophers, which he knew he was going to run into in Athens. With the Holy
2: Spirit, just
0: working in... Oh, absolutely. And I'm not leaving out the Holy Spirit guiding, I'm not. But it's like, you and I, it's like you and I, when we're talking to someone, the Holy Spirit is guiding our conversation, but it's important for us to think through what we're going to say. And ask the Lord for the words to say and the right response to questions. I mean, I, I pray that all the time, because I mean, God. But it is our responsibility too. I mean, that's why we prepare. Right. We prepare for ministry. We study. We we do it's part of what God expects us to do. I one time had a friend. This he was it was way a long time ago in Pennsylvania. He was a pastor. It wasn't real friend close friend of mine but he said, I didn't have time to prepare this Sunday, so I'm just gonna stand up and say whatever the Spirit wants me to say. <laughs> I wouldn't go to his church very often, that's how I mean that. That really disturbed me. That really disturbed me because what does Paul say to Timothy, his young study to show yourself approved. Study God's word. Before you teach it to your study. So, you know, anyway, that has nothing to do with Paul, but Anyway, I think I saw another hand or not. Yep, go I just
1: on. want to make a comment for the few people, you know, that believed all here. You know, or whatever it is. Right, mm-hmm. dynasties. That would, that would mean that the whole structure of Athens, all the temples and everything, would, would crumble. Because no longer... If
0: every single person... That. That's right, that's so right. I
1: can see why it would be hard for the average Greek and a philosopher to, to give up all that it just belongs oh, to the question is, did, did the Greek Orthodox Church get a beginning
0: here for no. most believers or did that come up from Rome or elsewhere? Uh, well no the The Greek uh I mean you're asking that question in a post ten fifty four era yeah, right. when the split yeah. occurred. Right. But the Greek the Greek Orthodox Church or the the they they will tell you we are the mother church we are the original church because they're in the eastern mediterranean and it's the latin church which is west rome comes later that's how they talk and the, the official split but not really no it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with this not not really does now it does relate to this because they are dualists because they came out of a dualistic, you know, the Greco-Roman world, some parts of the, the Eastern Church, particularly I'm thinking of the Coptic Church, they really diminish the humanity of Jesus but exalt his deity. Do you understand what I'm saying? They diminish the humanity of Jesus. They downplay his humanity and, and, and elevate his, his deity What the New Testament presents to us, it seems to me, is both. He's fully human, fully God. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, he is in all ways like us, yet without sin. Now, I I answered your question in a way that probably didn't help clarify, maybe more confusing. (laughs) But in terms of any philosophical, there's there's not really a connection uh, between what becomes the Greek Orthodox Church. I think we'd better quit because it's uh, 12 minutes of. Is that all right? If it even isn't all right, we're going to quit because I've got another class I teach. So um, let me pray. I thank you for your great questions, uh, really good questions, and for your comments. Um, Your thought paper would be how, 1,500 words now or less, how can I apply the argument Paul makes in Acts 17 to my strategy for witnessing today? Wouldn't that be a great thought paper? Oh, I would love to read them. I know none of you will do it. That's okay. I'll just throw it. I want to pretend that I'm still teaching in an accountability situation where I can make assignments. Father, we're grateful for uh, the book of Acts. Thank you for Dr. Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit recording for us the spread of the gospel in the Mediterranean world in the first century. This is remarkable. Uh, This is one of my favorite chapters for a lot of reasons. But we see how Paul addressed a group of pagan philosophers, forcing them to think differently about the world and to interject into that a consideration of a sovereign creator God who creates all things for human flourishing, who creates all the boundaries as a sovereign Lord, and also sends Jesus And that general revelation (laughs) folds into specific revelation and culminates in the doctrine of the resurrection. And as we saw at the end of the chapter, some people mocked him, some people said, we wanna keep talking about it, and others believed. In a way, that's the way people respond even today. Lord, help us just to be men of of deep conviction about the truth of your word, men deeply committed to Jesus as our Savior and Lord, and men who desire to represent you well in how we live and what we say. So dismiss us with your blessing. Enable us to be your good representative of a world that desperately needs to hear about Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 See you next week.